The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I am so pleased to have Professor Teresa Smith here on the show as my guest. Thank you for being here, Professor Smith. Absolutely delighted. Teresa Smith is Associate Professor at City University of New York School of Law and co-director of the Family Law Practice Clinic there. Professor Smith's research focuses on state overreach into the lives of marginalized families, the need for youth and community empowerment, the overcriminalization of youth, sexual and gender-based harms among youth, and alternatives to the adversarial and carceral systems. That is really interesting work. How did you develop those interests? I have always been extremely interested in youth and family issues, just coming from New Jersey and um, working with young people in Trenton. I'm from a suburb outside of there. Just getting into the issues that young people are facing and especially, um, you know, young people of marginalized identity. And I think that from that, I just always wanted to look at academic endeavors that would strengthen, you know, my ability to impact certain issues. So naturally I got involved in, you know, youth activism as a young person. Then I worked for some legislators both when I was in high school and then in college I ended up interning for Senator Kennedy. And in a roundabout way, I, I got really interested in just the macro level of talking about these things, but also policy and um, whether that's youth law, family law, and also gender violence. You're also an attorney. Can you tell me about the times that you practiced law and how you moved from, you know, youth activism? Did you go into law after all of that or? I did. You know, I have a very roundabout halfway to law school. And when I talk to my students about with law school's right for you, I try to give them hope because I was in no way that person that just knew I wanted to be a lawyer. On the contrary, I really was working for, like I said, state legislature, and then working for Senator Kennedy, I just got involved with seeing Patients' Bill of Rights, seeing all the ways that government can, can impact individuals, and likewise, the way that constituents really have to hold, hold their leaders accountable. And so eventually working for Senator Kennedy's office, um, back when he was alive, real great hero in my book, a lot of the policy council that I was working for, I worked for the Committee on Health and Human Services and Labor. And a lot of my mentors there were attorneys and they wrote his speeches and, and it was just really uh, inspiring to see how they thought and how they were making laws. They were drafting these things. And kind of after my time there, when I was graduating from college, because it was like college internships in the summer with the Senate, they said, you want to go to law school to see how lawyers think. If you want to write legislation, right, it's not just the language, but it's also really getting inside the fine tuning of, you know, how these bills are, are written and really shaping the way that laws are made. But I was never the person growing up that thought, you know, laws are great. I'm into the law. In fact, I'm first generation. None of it, no one in my family was an attorney. So I went to law school with the hope of just learning the craft thinking I was going to work for the government, maybe some type of um, government agency. And then I found juvenile justice, which was kind of my, my passion and got me into practice more. And from there, I did end up representing young people and seeing sort of the interconnected systems that youth and their parents were all involved in at the same time. 
What made you decide to go into academia and start teaching? So, you know, when I was growing up, my, my mother is, uh, well, she passed away. My mother was an educator, both uh, of K through 12. She was a speech pathologist and on the college level. And my father was social worker, worked for the state. And I come from a long line of family that's teachers as well. Lots of aunts, cousins are teachers. And they always told me, you're a teacher. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not a teacher. But I also wasn't, you know, I didn't have my heart set on being an attorney. And frankly, I grew up with a healthy skepticism of legal systems, seeing the way that marginalized communities are impacted, just seeing violence around me, right? Seeing state violence happening in certain communities. And so I wasn't necessarily sold on, on the idea of legal practice, but it did really occur to me that it's, it's important to represent people in, in their struggles on the day-to-day level uh, and to, to actually put in the work myself for that, for that way. You're a co-director of the Family Law Practice Clinic at CUNY. What's that like? It's been fabulous. And actually, I'm sorry, I didn't respond as much to your first question about why I got into academia. I, I did have a roundabout way. And so I think I have a roundabout way of talking about it. But as I mentioned, I do come from a long line of teachers. And so eventually as being an attorney, um, I, I practice special education law, representing young people with disabilities and also seeing their families, you know, deal with the family regulation system. Sometimes a young person would miss school because um, they were acting out or because frankly, they didn't have the services they needed. And I would see their parents, you know, get charged with educational neglect and even have, you know, an AC or, you know, what we call ACS um, in New York administration for children's services, have the state really come in and, you know, penalize parents and families for the young person's needs. And so I think after a good amount of time practicing, I really did want to talk more about the issues. So, you know, for a few years I taught and also practiced. And then lo and behold, I kind of felt like more like a duck to water in the classroom. I did like litigation to some degree, but it just felt much more life-giving to me to be able to exchange ideas and also help other folks understand their authentic voice in in lawyering. And so at CUNY City University of New York um, in the Family Law Practice Clinic, we have a really interdisciplinary way of looking at family law. Um, Our students have field placements and many of them work representing young people who are committed a crime or accused of committing crimes, representing parents who may have the state trying to come in and and surveil or um, intervene unnecessarily and everything in between. We have students representing foster youth, immigration issues that young people face. And so in my work as their professor, um, I supervise those externships. It's a fall only clinic, but also doing a really robust seminar. So what does it mean to interview young people, to counsel young people as clients? What does it mean to negotiate divorce proceedings? I, I do those kind of skills seminars, also doctrinal seminars, but also we have speakers coming in and it's a great clinic. We, we kind of have an everything interdisciplinary systems approach and, you know, looking at the way that mass incarceration impacts these families. In one city, you see certain communities being impacted by all of these ripple effects. And so, you know, we encourage students to do family law, but in, in a way that looks at a holistic view of who families are and how they're, how they're impacted. What have you seen as far as the relationship between families and the state goes? You said a little bit about how you saw that the government, the ways that the government impacted individuals and the way that individuals then impacted and held their elected officials accountable. Can you speak to that within the area specifically of families and family 
experiences of the state and like state regulation of families? Absolutely. You know, I don't know that people necessarily think in these terms, but one thing that struck me as I got more interested in academia, writing about families and practicing family law, there is such a dichotomy between what we think of as, or what academics talk about as private family law and public family law. In many families, there's just an assumption by the state that you have the privacy and the competence to handle your issues, right? If wealthy people want to get a divorce, wealthy people are figuring out custody, in the private sphere, you're kind of trusted to go to court, to file your papers. And also if there's issues with parenting, which we know every family has, right? Wealthy families, white families have issues with parenting and students getting in trouble, uh, even drug and alcohol abuse, right? Mental health crises. You don't see the state swooping in and taking children away. You don't see that, right? And so I'm just struck by the way that in families that are low income, communities of color, indigenous folks, the state has this presumption that you need the government to intervene and sometimes seize children or sometimes incarcerate people, you know, these punitive approaches. It's, it's striking to me how there's a real difference. And so one of my goals just in scholarship and teaching is to ask the question, right, what does it mean if the state were to treat families of color and low-income families just the same way as white families or wealthy families that have problems? Like, what do they get? What's their juvenile justice system? What's their response? And usually it's resources. It's services in terms of counseling, therapies, opportunities, even athletic programs for young people. Parents make it support as they need it. But resources is a real issue. It's what divides people and, and families in this country and many, many other places as well. Just that we presume if you do not have resources or if you, especially if you're from a marginalized community, that somehow you need the state to, to punish you for the difficulties you're having. Whereas all throughout society, there's these difficulties, right? How did you get into vulnerability theory and when did you start applying vulnerability theory to these issues? So I actually was a William Hasty fellow at University of Wisconsin several years ago, and I really had a chance that was after I was practicing law for a while and trying to find my voice in academia. And like a lot of practicing attorneys who might want to teach, I didn't necessarily know a lot about my academic or my scholarly voice. And so in that fellowship, I just had the opportunity to really immerse myself in the readings and finding Professor Feynman's work and vulnerability theory. It really just made sense in terms of a lot of the interconnected issues that I was working on, that I was seeing. Then from there, I got interested in the Feminist Legal Theory Project, and I went to certain events, the Title IX conference, I think it was, and Children in the Law conference as well, and just really excited to see the confluence of scholars, of intellectual energies, activists from there. So it was, it's been a good many years now that I've, I've gotten involved with vulnerability theory and the project. And I'm just very excited at the opportunity for people of different disciplines to connect people from different locations, social locations, geographic locations to understand this underlying recognition about the way, the way life is. You spoke a bit about resources and access to resources. How does that relate to state allocation of resilience within vulnerability theory? With the idea of resilience, I think it's so interesting. You know, in terms of vulnerability theory, I think that the idea of resilience, right, is that social institutions, systems, opportunities, privileges, uh, enable certain individuals to face adversity, to, to withstand adversity, and to be bolstered, you know, when 
there are external forces that may make them, you know, otherwise more fragile or more vulnerable. If you face an illness, if you have a misfortune, right? Privileged individuals have the social safety net that is not public, but that comes from, you know, whether that's programs or, or just some way to, to help yourself otherwise. Um, but I think the term resilience is also fraught because to some degree, I think the social services sector in particular uses the idea of resilience to sort of elevate a narrative of individual triumph, which is totally not what vulnerability theory is talking about. But this idea that, you know, oh, these foster kids are so resilient, so we don't need to change the foster care system. Or, you know, in terms of racial trauma, right? Um, there's, there's a lot of narrative about, you know, how African-Americans have withstood and were resilient. And that's true, right? But we shouldn't sort of obfuscate the idea that um, the status quo needs to change. Like people shouldn't need to um, be resilient because of survival reasons. But absolutely, um, society and, and systems do really enable certain um, communities and individuals to be resilient, whereas others either just you know have to resort to survival or don't have the opportunity to, to build resilience at all. Did you have a chance to think about an elevator speech? I did. I did. Okay. I don't know if I can make 30 seconds, but to me, vulnerability theory is a recognition that the human condition, right, underlying all external forces is one of precarity, fragility, physicality. We are just all material beings that are subject to illness, tragedy, other impacts. And so at our core, no human is actually moving through the world as an autonomous, uh, independent actor, contrary to, you know, a neoliberal orientation. Interdependence is a fact of life. And, you know, although a complex web of institutions and systems, laws, power dynamics, markets, distributes privileges and oppression unevenly, the only adequate social ordering, you know, including a state function is to respond to the universal human condition, you know, to equitably distribute access to care, resources for livelihood and opportunities for, for participation in society or, or for building resilience. That was a very concise elevator speech. Thank you. So when we talk about vulnerability theory, there are some words that come up pretty frequently. We talk about the responsive state, vulnerability as a term of art, and resilience, which you spoke to a bit before. Can you like briefly outline what that means, what those terms mean within your work? As per vulnerability theory, I, I do think a responsive state is absolutely a state that adequately attends to the human condition, um, dismantling the systemic disadvantages that some you know, communities face and remedying marginalization, social marginalization, economic marginalization. A responsive state is gonna consistently act to protect inhabitants from illness, from poverty, from state violence and other forms of harm. Um, that said to me, I do also you know, have a caveat that my personal contention is America's and, and many other countries, right, persistent violence and coercion by the state of, um, you know, families of color, LGBTQIA folks, other marginalized groups. I'm skeptical that state intrusion or expansion of, you know, state apparatus, for example, surveillance or monitoring by a court. I'm not sure that can yield true empowerment or prosperity. So I think when we talk about a responsive state, it's important to talk about resources that empower folks and equip folks for for capacity building and self-sufficiency rather than the state monitoring people or, or intervening when the state thinks that a, a individual or a family or a community should be doing something else and that can you know also be sort of moralistic so i think a responsive state also has the responsibility of empowering and equipping its its inhabitants 
to me, this underlying universal human condition of vulnerability, uh, it's really remarkable. I actually do practice in Buddhism. I do, you know, contemplative practice on my own and also actually in the law, the law school to some degree in terms of helping students understand um, wellness and sustainability in their profession. And so in Zen Buddhism, we have this sort of, um, it's like an ancient kind of slang that's been in Zen Proverbs about people being skin bags, you know, these sentient beings, we're just, we're just bags of skin. We are just, you know, um, vessels in on this world, in this life, right? And so we're subject to the limitations of our, of our physical being. And anyone can be subject to, you know, some kind of misfortune, tragedy. And so vulnerability really understands that, the condition that's opposite to an autonomous, independent self. We are interdependent and we are absolutely relegated to our physical form, um, but for, society, other people, institutions, um, helping folks to, to survive. And in terms of resilience, I did mention it to, to a certain degree. I do think it's a fraught term because it's misused too often, um, particularly in policy debates. I feel like it's a celebration of this idea of people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, right? There's often this emblematic success story of someone who did well despite poverty, despite um, you know, not having any kind of opportunities or support. And, and so I think to understand resilience, we have to see that absolutely society is equipping, you know, certain groups and individuals more than others to withstand adversity. And also there's a responsibility to ask um, what we're not doing to help folks be resilient uh, and, and to not just let the story be about um, resilience is success, period but why is resilience so unevenly distributed or why do some people and communities only become resilient because they have no choice, right? Considering African-American community, for example, my grandmother used to say, don't let them steal your joy. Like we talk about black joy as an act of resistance and resilience. And also, you know, you shouldn't have to face police brutality. You shouldn't have to worry about getting your children taken away for some minor incident in your life at a hospital, the kid falls, that kind of thing. We should ask what what we are not doing, enabling resilience throughout throughout society. So in your work in family law and with the family law clinic, where do you see places that to see vulner that you want vulnerability theory to be applied? And do you have any specific policy recommendations? That's a great question. I wonder like, how much time do you have? I'm, I'm so excited about especially um, in the realm of looking at access to resources and alternative um, arrangements to really equipping families by the state. Uh, I think there's an opportunity to talk about vulnerability theory. When, and I know um, I have a colleague, Lynn Liu, who, who's at CUNY Law as well, who writes about workfare, um, just looking at um, the challenges that low-income families face and the way that social policies should just respond um, across the board you know, to enable people to thrive. A lot of the time when we look at the family regulation system coming in and taking children away, it's often for poverty. And only some states have a law that separates the definition of child neglect from the definition of poverty. So in some states, you know, New York is a state that has a law that distinguishes. So it says child neglect is um, the, a, a caregiver's inability to provide for the basic needs of a child. And it lists all the particular needs when economically able to do so. But in other states that, that are jurisdictions, that definition isn't there. So just by mere fact that you don't have heat in your house, that you didn't have the child care that the state found you know, that you should have had, or that the young person doesn't necessarily have a coat, 
that's the best quote for the season. That could get a parent actually penalized and have their children taken away. So long story short, in terms of seeing the work of vulnerability theory, I think there's a, a real opportunity to talk about the human condition and the way that similarly situated people don't get the same ability to, to maintain their families and, and to thrive. And so what can we do in terms of social policy to help universal health care, affordable housing? I think those are family law issues. You know, it doesn't always have to be triage, but prevention of child neglect oftentimes is have the parent have a job, right? You know, give give the, the parent a living wage, um, enable universal health care so that that or men, and mental health care as well, so that folks in crisis, you know, have a safety net, the social safety net. Um, I think that conversation needs to broaden. So it's not just in sort of econ circles or, or folks who are just the policy wonks, but I think people who are doing family law advocacy. Um, and, and the scholarly community as well can talk about these broad social issues as being super applicable to vulnerability theory. What research are you working on right now? I'm excited to talk about a couple projects. I think in general, the broad themes of the work that I'm doing right now look at actually trying to reimagine, right, what uh, possibilities are for the way we respond to interpersonal violence, the way we respond to family crises, and also to gender-based harms. And not just critiquing, but also trying to see what can be built um, to, you know, beyond status quo systems and, and ableist, you know, racial kind of capitalism arrangements as we know it. So one project I'm working on um, has to do with family justice and civil rights protections um, in family law as pertain to actually marijuana decriminalization. Um, there's actually a bill introduced last week in, in um, Congress, which I'm excited about, but people don't necessarily think of marijuana law conflicts among the states and the federal government as creating really untenable family law conflicts. So, um, you know, there's a constitutionally protected right to family integrity, to having access to your children and, um, you know, to keeping your family together. And that's a constitutional right. But depending on a state you live in, you may get a child welfare case because of marijuana or in even with private family law disputes, such as custody disputes or matrimonial disputes. If a parent um, is in one state and the parent is in another state and marijuana is legal in one and illegal in another, that could cost you custody. There are so many ripple effects that actually impact family law. And so my forthcoming article in South Dakota Law Review talks about um, the fact that there has to be a national reckoning not just because of all the criminal collateral consequences and harms that have been done, which are absolutely huge, but also because of families that have been ripped apart or are being ripped apart. And really speaking to that as a need to, to reconcile the, the law conflicts in marijuana law. Another paper I'm working on is about youth technology um, and cyber abuse. And I look at young people in the Me Too era. In general, that's been a strand of work that I've been writing recently. I'm really struck by, obviously, the impact of the Me Too movement, but also that we're not asking what young people have to do with it, or sometimes adults are not necessarily equipping young people with empowering responses to the harms that they're experiencing with, you know, other young people. And so um, a forthcoming paper that I'm just sort of getting into now looks at cyber abuse in particular, gender-based harms online whether that's cyber harassment, doxing someone, cyber stalking, and everything in between, but looking at what it means to have some kind of remedies that are not carceral and also respond to the nuances of the digital age. A lot of the time when a young person, for example, if there's like revenge pornography or a young person has shown an image of their, their peer 
non-consensually. There could be other young people that are sharing the image, right? Who's the victim? Who's the perpetrator? And why are we seeing it in that frame? But also what can we do to really equip young people with tools to, to prevent that, right? To prevent interpersonal harms. And I also asked the question, should there be such a legal response? We don't have one. There's really not, not a legal framework for a lot of this, but does the law need to sort of step in and you know, um, intervene or does it really have to do with prevention, with education and with also regulating big technology to a certain extent, the big tech industries to, to protect young people more and to prevent digital harms. And then I'll talk about one other strand of work that I'm working on. I'm super excited to look at youth activism. There's There are a lot of bleak things happening these days, but also I'm so excited and moved by the way that young people in the climate activist movement, in Movement for Black Lives, the Need To movement, gun control activists are really refusing to look at this single issue organizing. Even if they're working on one particular movement, you see young people doing moral fusion and challenging the idea that racial capitalism and the way that things are ordered is a given. Young people are looking globally and saying that there's a problem um, and that you know all these things are interconnected. And so I'm excited to write about these youth movements and also what we can learn from them and what we can equip them with. Um, because especially in terms of climate crisis and these large scale issues, I think prior generations, myself included, aren't necessarily connecting the dots in ways that get everybody on board to change things. You know, it has to be a real systemic change and vulnerability theory 100% speaks to that. You know, there's not one issue that we focus on, one group that we focus on in terms of what's wrong with our, our system of ordering, period. What's wrong with the way that, that um, you know, we are aligning things in our society and with, with laws. Where do you see the law being necessary? Where do you see legal regulation necessary versus like social norms and, and social regulation? And all the different topics that I particularly write in and, you know, go to conferences on and speak, we're all asking that question, but in like a sort of um, topical way. We're not asking the huge question, like where should law be fitting in period with all of these things. And, and that's a really huge inquiry. I think like just taking one example, when you look at gender-based violence, I think we have so much evidence that arresting our way out of the problem doesn't work. Also requiring survivors to go to court, you know, requiring that survivors co cooperate with law enforcement, that's also not working. We have a lot of evidence that, you know, the law has, has been damaging. And, and so I think in a lot of cases of interpersonal harm, we're not getting at the core issue, the underlying reasons why there is gender-based violence or why um, there's interfamilial violence. And so law is not effective in that in that respect. Um, I think we just don't have other solutions like that, that whole phrase, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I think there are more scholars, more activists just looking at alternatives, whether that's restorative justice, transformative justice, approaches that look at the individuals experiencing and causing harm and ask those deeper questions and also look at ways to not just remedy harm but prevent it in the future because so many of these things are cyclical right even if you have one court case you have one law that changes things that does not shift the way that families relate to each other that does not shift the way that gender dynamics play out in abusive relationships those things cut deep so i think in that respect we need not law, but more responses to human behavior. But also I would say that it's something that needs to empower both survivors and impacted communities, not necessarily that, you know, we need more social workers to, to, to get a case for that person.
in many times you absolutely do need social services, you need mental health support, you need anger management. And in other, other cases, you need a lot of deeper preventive work with the community, as well as looking at things like pod mapping, which is looking at if there's a community that has a lot of violence, has a lot of challenges, right? How do we know who our resources are in our community? How does it look to respond to violence without the police? And I, and I think I'm much more skeptical of sort of the legal interventions and, and more hopeful about empowering people. And that's one example is, you know, interfamilial or family violence, but on the whole as well, whether that's youth who may be in crisis or other issues. I think too often we, we have a very ill-fitted approach with the law and not, we don't look at the root cause. Often the root cause is poverty or the root cause is an inability to have alternatives. With the root cause being something like poverty, that is something that legislation can change. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Can you tell me a little more about pod mapping? I haven't heard that term before. Sure. I'm, I'm not an expert in pod mapping, but I very much want to elevate the work of Mimi Kim, the Bay Area Transformative Justice Initiative, Mariam Kaba, a lot of folks who are doing the work, especially in pilot communities, but also have been doing the work a long time to just see when communities are impacted by violence or gender violence, what it would look like to take take stock of who our resources are, sort of the next step. What does it mean if something arises? Who do we go to? How do we solve our own problems? And a lot of these approaches actually look sort of more inward at, at longstanding solutions like indigenous communities doing circle processes when there's a harm caused. Looking at the interpersonal level of that, I know that pod mapping sort of asks people to lay out what, what the lay of the land is in their community and the possibilities for strengthening their realms of support, their realms of camaraderie, as well as like incident response so that we don't necessarily have to rely on the state, whether that's police, social services, paramedics, that kind of thing. If it's not a medical emergency, right, what can our community do to make sure that we are with people we trust and also looking at some of the root causes of, of what, what went wrong? What would you like the impact of your research to be? I have been fortunate to have some articles that I wrote a while ago um, impact court cases on, on parental rights in particular and parents with disabilities, understanding that the Americans with Disabilities Act does apply to um, you know, parents in the child welfare system or you know, family regulation system, um, bolstering those rights. But I think in terms of the big picture, I would really um, you know, love to be able to help influence policy that impacts um, you know, communities and that impacts longstanding interpersonal issues, you know, whether that's gender-based violence, family poverty, um, you know, unnecessary state intervention. And so I am, um, you know, looking forward to getting a little bit more involved in some of the, the federal work that's being done um, with decriminalization of marijuana, as well as just sort of connecting the dots on issues of gender-based violence. I think the Me Too movement is an incredible moment and it's people are still very much talking in, in terms of the Me Too movement, even though there was a sort of groundswell several years ago. And so I think it's a, an opportune time, especially like with the work I do on cyber abuse and young people to get a little bit more on the ground and like see what schools can do to to work on these issues, even, you know, some kind of frameworks for young people to look at the harms they're experiencing and and respond to them. I would like to really have an impact 
on on the issues, you know, but that means coming down from academia as well. Or I shouldn't say coming down, that's horrible. <laughs> that's the point, Ivory Tower, you shouldn't have to come down. Also learning, right? Learning from impacted folks. Like I definitely am not the person who wants to say I know best on any of these issues. Like there's some issues that impact me, but there's many that don't. And so I just also hope to work with not just scholars, but policymakers, activists, impacted folks to see what policies can shift in the short term and the long term. That sounds amazing. And it sounds like your work has already had quite an impact, um, but I'm excited to you know, read your forthcoming paper and see what you do going forward. Thank Is there you. anything else that you'd like to talk about before we end our conversation today? Uh, I would, I guess, since you asked, I would love to share a couple quotes. Um, Angela Davis, uh, the activist and scholar is always a, a person that I, I look to. And one of the quotes that I love by her is, you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world. And you have to do it all the time. And, and that's something I try to live by. It's not always easy to have hope. But, you know, when you look at things like abolition of slavery, when you look at um, the beginning of, of women's rights, which is still emerging all the time, right? Those things were not necessarily conceived of at the time, but people still tried to envision it to push for it. And so we really do have to act as if it's possible to, to transform things all the time, because that's the way things are, are transformed. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that quote. What would you like listeners to remember about our interview today or about our conversation today? Solutions can be outside of the box, right? And that we often are just relegated to what we see around us in terms of legal systems, in terms of of responses to harm. And so I'd love folks to remember that there's still innovation. There needs to be innovation and often um, impacted folks, survivors, right? We have empowerment. Don't let external forces necessarily impact you if you think that you can have innovative responses to, to harm, to problems, or to create new approaches. Thank you so much for being here today and taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. This has been so interesting. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, You can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.